Hey everybody, Seth here. Welcome to this special episode of Claritox we're calling Claritox Conversations. As part of an article I wrote for our Fall 2021 Foundations Journal, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. John Walton, a biblical scholar and professor at Wheaton College, about the foundations of Genesis 1. In today's discussion, Dr. Walton helps me walk through how we think about biblical interpretation and what we might need to rethink in order to read the Bible in its original context. I summarized our conversation in my article entitled The Lost Home of Genesis 1, which you can check out on cornellclaritas.com. But I thought it would be great to release the entire conversation so you can dive in deeper to Dr. Walton's incredible knowledge and insight. So without further ado, here's the full-length conversation with Dr. Walton. Dr. John Walton, thank you for joining us here at Clara Talks. First off, can you start by introducing yourself and what areas of biblical studies that you focus on? Sure. It's good to be here, Seth, and nice to have this conversation. So I teach Old Testament at Wheaton College. I've been here for over 20 years and enjoy teaching in this department where I can focus both on the Old Testament as well as on the ancient Near East and uh, Hebrew and things of that sort. My interests in biblical studies, uh, my specialties are comparing the ancient world and the way that people thought in the ancient world with what we have in the Bible. So that's kind of my niche. It gets me into things like Bible and science as well. So I do a lot in that area. And it also gets me a lot into the area of hermeneutics, good methodology, how do we interpret well? So those have been the areas that I have specialized in. I've focused on several different biblical books. Genesis has my, been my first and most constant focus, but I've also done work with Job and Jonah and Daniel. So gotten to dig into those books a little more deeply. Yeah, I, I remember hearing lots of different talks with you about Genesis, and then I heard you're working on Daniel. I have a question. I see a ton of books behind you. Have you read all of those books? <laughs> no, no. You know, you can see kind of over my shoulder, the yellow ones and the blue ones, they're all commentaries. And those are reference works. I go into them when I need them. Uh, very few people read a commentary cover to cover. So, and I always keep that in mind when I write commentaries. Yeah. So many of the books that I have are for reference purposes. So it varies. And I imagine if you're digging into the history and culture and, you know, all of these different aspects of the ancient world, you probably have to use a lot of references to get there. Indeed, that is true. So I want to start with this question, which you talk about in the book that we're going to be mostly talking about called The Lost World of Genesis 1. What do we, as 21st century Westerners, commonly get wrong when we interpret the Bible? Well, let me mention two things. The first is that we often fail to realize the cultural distance we have to travel. We are, are really committed to the idea that the Bible has something to say to us, but we often then just start with our world and our questions and our issues instead of recognizing that this is an ancient text written in another language and another culture. And so we don't often realize that we've got to go that cultural distance. I like to say that the Bible is written for us, but not to us. And sometimes when we come at the text, we're only paying attention to the for us part. 
And in my mind, we have to start with the to us or to them, uh, to them part. So uh, I think that's one of the mistakes we make. We try to read it in light of our ancient culture, or even we just don't pay attention to trying to clear our own culture away so that it doesn't dictate what we do. So that's one thing, the cultural distance. The second thing is that we want to read the Bible as having a personal payoff. And so we read the Bible in terms of, you know, what is God's will for me? And what should I do or not do today? And how does this inform my doctrine? And how does this, you know, lead me to a flourishing, successful life? You know, all of those kinds of issues where we keep wanting to bring it right down to me. And I think that that has been the cause of a lot of problems as we read. The, I would say, alternatively, we should understand all the different parts of the Bible as helping us to understand God's plans and purposes, and that we ought to live our life then as ones committed to participating in God's plans and purposes. Uh, that's very quick. That would take a lot of unpacking. Uh, but so those are the two things, moving across cultures and the inclination to want to be all about me when it's really all about God. Mm. I love that because I think that a lot of the evangelical church over the past 120 years or however long has really been focused on the individualism mm -hmm. of, of the Bible yes. um, without really thinking about you know, what the Bible has to say beyond me. Cause it's really, I mean, I'm not that important, <laughs> you know, God has a bigger plan. I mean, we're important in his eyes, but there's a lot more to this story. Oh yeah. The way I talk about that is that some of us think that we're driving along in our luxury sedan and we see Jesus hitchhiking by the road and we invite him into our car so that he can take us to our best life now. And we're in the driver's seat and he's just kind of the navigator uh, helping us avoid bumps and pit holes and take the right turns. And that's just a very poor model of how to think about it all. We use the Bible the same way, but rather we should imagine that when we meet Jesus, we don't invite him into our car, we abandon our car and we get on his train and we're on the tracks of the kingdom and he's the conductor, you know, the, the engineer, those kinds of things that help us to see that it's not about me. You know, I'm joining God's work. God's not joining my work. And so some of those things can help us reorient how we think. And even, you know, we, we like to think it's our car, but the Bible is really, it's, it's actually written to an ancient culture and we've actually been invited into their story, which is interesting. Right. So I was exactly. wondering if you could explain kind of this concept, kind of going back to this culture of the ancient Israelites. We mentioned when it comes to Genesis, we're talking about ancient cosmology, which is not very well known to most of us. Right. Um, can you... Kind of help us understand why it's important to know about it, to learn about it, when understanding the creation narrative and other aspects of the Bible. Well, we, we have to try to see things from their perspective. That's the crossing culture issue. We have to think about how they thought in their culture. Most peoples, most cultures throughout history have some kind of idea about, but certainly not all cultures think about creation the same way we do in our modern scientifically oriented uh, mindset. And so in that regard, we have to ask, how did they think about creation? Instead of trying to drag our questions out of them in the framework of our mindset, we have to understand their mindset. So 
we have to pause and ask, what kind of creation account is this? Instead of assuming that it's going to be our kind of creation account, uh, which again is very driven by science. So an example, you know, imagine that you're going to a play and because of traffic and an accident and bad weather and trouble parking, you end up walking into the theater half an hour. Intermission comes and you, you ask the people around you, how did the play begin? And one person jumps right in and he says, well, the script was written in the 1930s. And you say, no, 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 that's, that's not what I'm interested in. Well, well, he says, you can't have the play without a script. I get that, but that's a, and another person jumps in and says, well, this theater was built in the 1950s. And I said, no, no, you know, that's, I understand I'm sitting in a theater and it needs to be here, but that's not what I, what I want to know. Another person jumps in and says, this set was constructed precisely for this play to fit this black box theater. You say, no, I mean, I know the set's important and you can't have the play without the set, but that's not what I was asking. And now the person behind you chimes in and says, the cast was chosen, but you say, no, 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 no. I know those things are all important, but my question is, what's happened since the curtain opened? Now, I think the important part of that illustration is that it shows us that there are numerous ways to answer the question correctly. Those are all right answers. They're not contradictory. They're just come at things from a different perspective. And if you're really a set person and you want to understand about sets, or if you're really a script person, well, you'd want to look at those things. But you have to understand that all of those are ways to answer how did the play begin? So likewise, when we ask a question, how did the world begin? We have our modern scientific answers that we give for that, but we have to try to set those aside and say, what's the question they're asking and what are the answers they're giving? And in my view, uh, they're talking about something very different from the way that we come at it. And so understanding ancient cosmology is one way to start thinking on their, on their plane to be thinking in terms that they're thinking. So for instance, when we read in day four that God made the sun, moon, and stars, well, he doesn't say that. It says he made the lights, right? God made the lights. Well, we think, oh, God's manufacturing these material objects, these heavenly bodies. But when we think their cosmology, we have to realize that they don't know that they're material objects. They don't know that the sun, moon, and stars are what they are, what we call them in, in our way of looking at it. Uh, to them, they are lights and God made the lights shine. And that's a different thing from creating the material objects. So just ways like that, where we can understand their cosmology, understand their concepts, their conceptual world, and understand the questions they're asking, that can be a great help to reading the, the passage well. I know the ancient cosmology idea has different like conceptions of, of what their world would have looked like for the ancient Israelite. You mentioned it in your book, and I've heard it in other sources. I know that there's kind of this idea of a firmament, right? Like waters above, waters below. And that kind of helps us kind of imagine even how they conceived of the world. Could you maybe explain a little bit of like how they were picturing the world, how we know what, how they were picturing the world? It's, it's a complicated topic because even when they talk about a solid sky and waters above and things of that sort, which many of the cultures do, some people would say, well, that's just metaphor. You know, they don't really think that. And uh, it's the same thing. I mean, that's texts. It's the same thing when we see the iconography. Uh, we can see iconography that suggests 
uh, the, a solid sky and the star is engraved uh, on the underside of the solid sky. We see iconography like that in Egypt, in Mesopotamia. And those are more things that suggest that that's how they, that's how they envisioned them. But is that envisioned in a reality way or envisioned in a how it looks to me way? Uh, those are still conversations that, that go on. But still, it's a different way of thinking about the world than what we do. It seems like they did believe that there was water all around, under and above. And that's what the Bible expresses. And that's what's expressed in the ancient world as well. So again, there are those debates with people who would try to say, no, that's just metaphor. That's just uh, phenomenal, you know, their phenomenological way of seeing. I'm not convinced that it's just that. I think they're likely more, yeah, that they're thinking in those terms. But that's always a problem when you're dealing with another culture. Exactly. Especially one that was thousands of years ago. In the book, you walk through kind of the seven-day creation narrative, and you kind of explain, like we mentioned earlier, the themes of the days, rather than when God created the light, doesn't say he created the stars and the sun, he created the light. And you kind of mentioned these themes of time, weather, food, and how they're represented as functions rather than material structures. Can you help us understand that difference between the functional and the material viewpoints of creation? Sure. The, when I wrote Lost World of Genesis 1, which is the book we're talking about now, I, I had already observed that it looked like the focus of Genesis 1 was not material or physical. And so then I kept asking myself, so how do I describe what it really is? If it's not material or physical, what is it? At that time, the best term I could come up with was functional. That is that it's describing how things work, how they function. And I haven't given up that idea, but I think that now that there are better ways to express it. I would now tend to use the word order uh, more than the word function. Now, I used that even in the Genesis 1 book because I talked about functioning uh, meant having a role and a purpose in an ordered system. And that's really the key phrase, role and purpose in an ordered system. And so that's how I described this functionality. Uh, but I think I would even try to emphasize more strongly that God is ordering the cosmos. And it's like when a new CEO comes into a company, he doesn't just fire everybody and burn out the building and then start again from scratch. He, he orders it under the way he wants to run the company, or she sets it up the way that it's organized under her authority. So in that sense, yeah, it's, it's a different sort of, of work. And so one of the analogies that uh, I've used, and I didn't have it yet when I wrote that book, uh, is if you talk about the distinction between a house and a home, you can talk about creating a house, which is like building the house, the foundation, the roof, the, the siding, the electricity, the plumbing, you know, all of those things is building the house. And that's a creative act. That, that's an important part. And there it is. But if you've built the house and nobody's living in it, it's not really functioning as a house. It may be that electricity is all hooked up the minute you flip the switch, but somebody's got to flip the switch or turn on the faucet or whatever it might be. The roof protects from rain, whether somebody's inside or not. But it doesn't matter that it protects from rain if nobody's inside it. 
So at some point, you know, you would have an empty house, but then it becomes a home. And that's a separate creative act because now you're talking about organizing it so that it's useful, so that it functions, so that it has a purpose to it. And that ordering act, where are you gonna put the furniture? How are you gonna paint the walls? What are you gonna hang on the walls? Whose room is going to be whose? What room is going to be what? One of the houses we lived in, there was a room set up as a formal dining room, but we didn't need a formal dining room. So we converted it to a computer room and a den. Oh, so it had a new function. We created a den because we set it up to function that way and furnished it that way. And so the difference between creating a house and creating a home, it's in our society, you can't create a home if you don't have a house. Other cultures are different. Other cultures, you know, a home is their community, not the structure they live in. But for our, for our culture, you know, sure, you have to have a house, but you can still talk about the creation act connected to the home. So when I have students over and they're asking about my place that I live in, they don't want me to tell them about the plumbing and the, and the electricity. You know, let me show you where all the switches are. They're not interested. Okay, they want to kind of talk about how we made this our home. So I'll talk about the pictures on the walls and how each one has a story behind it or where we got this piece of furniture and what an interesting story that has. Home is where the story opens up. And so we understand the difference between telling a house story and telling a home story. So why should we go to a creation account and assume that if it's a creation account that it has to be a house story? It doesn't. It can be a home story. That doesn't, that doesn't neglect the idea that there's a house, but the real creation is the home story. And so as I talk about this difference between the material and the functional, you know, the functional says, this is a home story. It's talking about God ordering the cosmos for us and for him to dwell among us. And it's all about that organizing. That was the most important creative act in the ancient world. That order out of chaos, you know, the idea of, of God bringing it into being. I think this is, this is always so hard. I think growing up, you know, learning about the Bible and then kind of, I know many people have had the challenge of kind of conceiving of this, right? Like how do we think about things in this view? Because it's not how we think about the world generally. You know, I think about the fact that, you know, something is material it serves a purpose but i also think of it in like a material way and i think it's kind of hard to like balance it is. Those, those ideas it's hard to work outside of your own cultural perspectives i mean that's the challenge and it's the challenge all the way through reading the bible absolutely i want to keep talking about this like functional idea specifically coming into the idea of of humanity so like you you use the word order on the seventh day, not on the seventh day, on the sixth day, God creates, creates uh, humanity. Um, and then there's also the story of Adam and Eve within that comes in Genesis 2. How is humanity and this idea of ruling the earth and subduing it that is given to humanity, how does that kind of represent or how is that part of the functional perspective or the ordering perspective? Well, I think at one level, it's fairly obvious and explicit because those are functions, they're verbs. And therefore they describe functions that we were designed to carry out. But we have to be careful not to isolate them from the previous verses. 
That is, subdue and rule or subjugate and rule, however you want to translate them, have to be understood as subordinate to the idea of the image of God. Uh, and so the idea that God has created us in his image to work alongside him to continue bringing order. That is, God has ordered the cosmos optimally. You know, it'll work. Okay, but it's not finished yet. And we know it's not finished yet because there's an outside the garden, which is not as ordered as inside the garden. There's still the sea and darkness, which are elements of non-order in the ancient world. And the very fact that God asks us to come alongside him and subjugate and rule. That means there's still some order to be brought. So God made us in his image because we are going to be working alongside him to carry out, here's the key, his work. Okay, so subdue and rule can't be just what works best for me. I'll exploit the environment or the ecology as much as I want, you know. No, no, no. We are trying to work alongside him to bring his order. And he's given us a vice president role in, in his organization to do that. I have to talk in those terms since you're a marketing guy, you know. But it's, uh, we're supposed to work in his organization. We're not branching off to do our own competing organization, which is what it actually is what happens in Genesis 3. They decide, I'm going out in business of my own, you know, and uh, so I'm not going to work for God's purposes. I'm going to work for my own purposes. Welcome to humanity. And so that kind of idea. So subdue so and rule are important, again, because they're verbs. They tell what we're tasked to do and that they have us operating under the aegis of God and his plans and purposes, working toward his order. And you mentioned a little bit, I mean, about the idea of like, you know, the environment or how that kind of plays into like the way that we view, you know, our, <laughs> where we are in the story of, of creation and, and our story with God. What are some other like ways that we can take this idea into the way that we live today? Well, it involves always asking the basic question, or rather, I guess, making the basic observation. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God. So what am I doing to try to recognize God's plans and purposes, God's order, and how can I look beyond my own inclinations, my own selfishness, my own greed, my own self-fulfillment, whatever it might be, in order to pursue God's purposes. That's not an easy thing for us to do, but if we keep asking the question, at least we have a half a shot of, of going the right direction. Now, remember also that when we are trying to be productive participants in God's plans and purposes, we can't go about that by just kind of scanning through every page of scripture and trying to pull out proof texts. The Bible is not going to address many of the things that we need to think about in our world and as we go about trying to be God's people. And so instead of pulling out proof texts from the Bible, instead we should be praying to the Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance. Not just me doing that personally, us doing that as a community of God's people, so that we have the wisdom of many of us instead of my own crazy ideas, whatever they might be. And so that idea of saying, don't proof text, pray for wisdom. 
I, I want to kind of dig into the story of creation a little more and specifically this idea of, of cosmic temple inauguration, which I think is a new concept to most people when you're thinking about the creation narrative. You explain it in your book. I don't know if you've like changed the term since since this book is a little old. So I'd love if you could ex- you know talk about that that idea and how it's kind of different from a purely theological or purely scientific view uh, of creation. Yeah, good. Again, I I start by helping us to realize that we have to go back into the ancient world. And we know this because we get to day seven and we say, huh, what's this all about? God rests. Wait a second. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't need downtime or a weekend or, or whatever. So this doesn't make any sense to me. And when I read day seven, oh, he's not doing anything anyway, so it doesn't matter. And so we talk about the six days of creation, and we just kind of say, I guess day seven is just about some kind of Jewish holiday, doesn't have anything to do with me. This shows how deeply and how badly we misunderstand uh, what's going on when we talk about God resting. And for that, we get some help from the Bible, but most people don't find that. And we also get help from the ancient Near East, and most people don't have access to that. When it says that God rests on day seven, the verb that it uses is actually Shabbat. It's, that's the verb. And that talks about cessation. He ceased what he was doing. So he ceased his ordering work, his ordering creation work. Fine. What did he do? Well, it's actually Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11 that tell us that, because there, that's the Ten Commandments. And it talks about how God uh, rested from his work, Shabbat. Okay, but also how he took up his rest, different verb, nuach, and this is talking about what God is, that he is actually resting in that way. Now, what's that way have to do with? Well, that way is the most important thing here, because when God rests, he doesn't rest on a bed or in a hammock or a recliner or whatever, okay? When God rests, he rests on a throne. And there's the key. God, God's resting is not a disengagement, which is what we think resting is. We disengage, right? Uh, God's resting is an engagement. He's now sitting on his throne to take control. Okay, so he's completed that phase of ordering, but now he's going to rule the ordered world. And so he takes his seat on his throne. We can get that, by the way, with Psalm 132 verses 13, 14, 15, where it talks about that idea that the temple is the place where God, it's his resting place, and that there he rules. So it gives us that connection, even in the Bible, but we don't make the connection. We just get confused and we dismiss it. But this means that day seven is the most important day. The reason God ordered the cosmos all the way through those six days was so that he could then take control of it. It's almost like when somebody gets all the, the inventory in, they're going to open a new, a new store, and they get all the inventory, and they spend six days stocking the shelves, unpacking the boxes, getting everything ready. And then, no, they don't just walk away, lock the door. And, you know, they actually open up for business. And that's, that's what day seven is all about. Now, so why does that help us? Okay, that means that God is preparing the cosmos as a place where he will dwell, right? God rests on a throne. 
He's preparing the cosmos as a place for his presence. Okay, so that gives us purpose. If you just read the, the six days, you don't get purpose. It's the seventh day that gives us purpose. Now, if we think about God preparing a place for him to dwell, now you can see how we can easily make the connection to temple, because that's what the temple is, a place for God to dwell, whether it's tabernacle or temple, a place for God to dwell. So in that sense, if God's preparing a place for him to dwell, he's sort of preparing the cosmos to be like a temple, a place of his dwelling, a sacred space. And so that gives us this idea of a cosmic temple. Now, where does the inauguration come in? Well, when we have the tabernacle or the temple being built in the Old Testament, once they've completed the material physical structure, then you have to make the transition. How does it move from just being a building to being a temple? After all, when they're done doing the temple or doing the tabernacle, it's not God's dwelling place yet, not till he comes into it. Well, they have an inauguration. And those inaugurations are seven-day inaugurations. And so the idea that the cosmos is being likened to a temple, that God is preparing it for his presence, and that the seven-day structure is reminiscent of a seven-day inauguration for sacred space. And that's why it would be framed in that way. If, it, if those seven days are not about house building, but about home building, if they're about ordering and organizing and not constructing, then those seven days don't have anything to do with the age of the earth, because that's a physical material question. Rather, they are pointing us toward how God was inaugurating this sacred space in which he would dwell. It's important theology, not just the theology of God is creator. God is ruler, as well as being creator. And so it gives us an important piece of theology that unless we link into that idea of the cosmic temple and what temples are for and what rest is about, we're going to miss it. I wonder how that also plays in then, I mean, with the story of Jesus coming, right? The, the new covenant also establishes this new idea that dwell, God can actually dwell in us. I wonder if there's kind of the connection then that, you know, through this creation story, we not only see how God is dwelling in everything in, in, in this world that he's created, but through Jesus and through that new covenant he created, we've also become part of that in like a, in the sense that Jesus is, and the Holy Spirit is in us now as, as believers. Is there, is there a connection there as oh, well? Oh, absolutely. So when you have this understanding of Genesis 1, that is preparing sacred space, sacred space for God's dwelling so he can be in relationship with us. That becomes the story of the Bible. Okay, chapter three, we blow it. We lose access to God's presence, right? We lose relationship, okay? And then the whole rest of the Bible is moving toward restoring that. And so the tabernacle, God comes back to dwell among his people. Temple, God dwells among his people. But then God's presence leaves in Ezekiel when they go into exile. Okay, but then as we anticipate God's presence somehow being accessible again, okay, we hear about this Emmanuel concept. And so the incarnation, you know, Jesus didn't just come to die. He came to be God's presence among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? 
That's John 1.14. And that's the whole concept of the incarnation. Jesus' presence among us, where he gives, has relationship available because he's living among us, where he makes relationship possible because he dies for us, and where he uh, promises to be with us always, right? That's the end of the Great Commission. Going, making disciples is important, but then, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And that he goes to prepare a place for us, John 14, so that where he is, we might also be. And so God's presence is one of the key factors of the incarnation. But then it doesn't stop there. It moves to Pentecost. And the idea now that not only is God's presence living among us, okay, not in our midst, like the temple, not among us, like incarnation, but now within us, in the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And so God's presence in us. And so we are the temple, as Paul tells us. And so, yes, this theme starts in Genesis 1, continues all the way through the Bible. And we get messed up because we don't recognize it in Genesis 1. You know, it's like somebody tore the first couple pages out of our book. And so we, we don't get the idea of God's presence, that this is why God created us, to live among us, to be in relationship with us. It's why he's created us. It's what God has always wanted, we assume, since he makes it happen. And this is what the Bible's all about. And of course, it doesn't end until Revelation 21, where now new creation and where there is no temple because God is here. And there's no sea and no darkness, no suffering, uh, but God's presence among us. So, yes, this is the theme of the Bible. And if we miss it in Genesis 1, we miss something very important. And I feel like that ties back so well to our theme of foundations. Like this is a foundational idea that we, if we don't look at Genesis in a way that lets us see it, we're going to miss it a lot of the time throughout the rest of the Bible. And what we tend to do as Christians, let me be careful here. We like <laughs> to emphasize salvation as a foundation. And it is, hear me say that, it is. But if we take the way the Bible presents things, the larger foundation, the more important foundation is relationship and presence. When Christ comes and dies for us and provides salvation, it makes that full relationship possible. And it makes presence within us, the Holy Spirit, possible. But there you can see that salvation is feeding a larger foundation. And the larger foundation is relationship and presence. So when we as Christians kind of make salvation our main focus, the Old Testament almost becomes a write-off. So it, it, nothing counts till Jesus comes. And that's unfortunate because, yeah, we're missing very important aspects of the story. And, I mean, the character of God is revealed in the fact that he wants to have relationship with his creation. Right. And it's not only the, the revealed character. It's also how he has been working out his plans and purposes among his people to make it all happen. And to make it all happen doesn't just refer to Jesus. It refers to the whole process of covenant and, you know, God working with his people as he revealed himself and revealed his plans and purposes. Jesus is the fruition of those plans and purposes, but it's not the only part of it. And we've got the whole Bible to appreciate the whole part of God's plans and purposes. 
we've been talking about this foundational idea and i think in our theology and in our conception of who we are as christians this is really really important but i do think that as you have had these conversations a lot of the questions then come down to the burning question <laughs> can science and this biblical story this biblical idea of the temple inauguration can these coexist how how do we think about our origins then in in this way and mm-hmm. you put there's so much to say about it could you give your your fast answer <laughs> about sure. can science and and the bi- biblical story coexist yes oh <laughs> you'd like me to elaborate a little bit so absolutely yes they can um you know, go back to what I've said about house story and home story. Science is a house story. And science doesn't talk about a purpose. Science doesn't talk about a creator. Uh, Science can't talk about those things. Uh, Science is interested in mechanisms by its very nature. Whereas the Bible is interested not in mechanisms, but in agency. Who is the agent of creation and what were his purposes? And so in that sense, they're talking about different things. Science is about mechanisms. The Bible doesn't say anything about mechanisms. Bible is about agency. Science has nothing to say about agency. And so in that sense, they they are not addressing the same issues. Again, science is largely a house story. And in my view, the Bible is not at all a house story, although certainly they acknowledge God built the house. Absolutely. But they're not telling that story. Again, when... How did the play begin? You know, they're telling the home story and the ordering story. Well, in that way, they really are not making competing claims because they're making different sorts of claims. And if they're not making competing claims, they're compatible. You know, if if someone adopts an evolutionary model, there's nothing in the Bible to to hold them back from that or to pose an obstacle, because even in evolutionary models, it's easy to. Uh, adopt the idea that God is the creator. He's overseeing that whole process. And what we call evolution is just how God did creation. And that's perfectly compatible. So they're not making different sorts. I mean, they're not making the same sorts of claims. And so to that extent, yes, they are, they are compatible. And we don't have to worry about the big war between the Bible and science. There is no war, never was a war. It's only when we tried to read the Bible through our scientific view and make it science, now you create a problem. I do wonder if, and I, I, I see, I completely see that. I wonder if a lot of the opposition then to ideas like evolution or, you know, these secular scientific ideas, although we can debate that all day. I wonder if the opposition comes from the fact that people who have adopted those views of evolution and don't have a religious framework, don't have a purpose framework, then try to impose purpose onto these scientific ideas, such as naturalism, such as not like the way that things operate in like a theoretical sense. You know, I think that might be some where a lot of that opposition starts to come in then. Yeah, you're exactly right, Seth. Certainly there are plenty of scientists who use evolution as a weapon against faith or the Bible or Christianity. And they're using it wrong. They're taking something that's a science and now they're employing it as a philosophy. And that, sorry, that's that's not science anymore. That's your <laughs> philosophical um, commitments that are speaking. 
And so in that sense, I think lots of Christians have reacted against evolution because of the ways that evolutionary theory has been set up as a philosophy. And it's actually the philosophy that's worth objecting to, not the science itself. Yeah, yeah. There's so much to talk about there, but I think we'll leave it at that for the purpose of this of this interview and article. I think I'm trying to kind of come up with a final a final idea, a final question. I think one thing that keeps coming back is just how when we read the Bible, we're coming at we come at it from our lens generally, and how how do we get around that? How do we start see things from the perspective of the culture, and ultimately, um, in the purposes and, and the ways that God is working? What would be like a recommendation you'd have for a student, you know, somebody at Cornell who is wanting to learn more about the Bible and and read it from this perspective, reading it from a perspective mm-hmm. of of taking themselves out of it? What are some recommendations you have for how we can do that, how we can become humble when we come to the biblical text? Yeah. Um, You know, the the first big step is to recognizing that this is something that needs to be done, that you need to push your own culture aside. We know we can't do that totally. There's all kinds of things that are built into our ways of reading and our understanding that we we don't even know they're there. And so we certainly can't succeed in pushing them aside. But still, there are lots of things we can. When we when we go to the biblical text and try to understand it and ask questions of it, to stop and say, well, wait a minute, are these, are these questions that are based on my cultural understanding or the answers I'm drawing from it based on my cultural understanding? Even if we don't know the culture of the Bible at all, we can still identify things that are modern issues. You know, no, Proverbs is not talking to you about social media. I'm sorry, no, it's it's not. But that's no different than saying that Genesis is talking to you about the Big Bang or you know the material creation. So we can we can that's the first big step, being aware of the problem, the cultural distance, being aware of it and trying to, to kind of spread that to the side so it's not having such a great influence on us. The second is to make use of whatever resources are available. Uh, that help us to understand the ancient world. And those are increasingly available. For a student who wants to get started with that, I would certainly recommend right some of the books I've done, like The Lost World of Genesis 1. But more broadly, I was the Old Testament editor for the Cultural Background Study Bible. That's got the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. All the notes are about cultural background. So it's not about theology or application. There are study Bibles for that. But this is all about the cultural, historical, archaeological, linguistic, manners and customs. It's about the, the background. And so you can get a Bible like that, very affordable, and track along with it when you read passages and kind of see what some of the cultural issues are. So those are some, some good ways to start. Um, I've, written, I've written other books that kind of take you the next step on various issues. I've got a book called Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. And again, that's a different way to approach it because it's not approaching it through the Old Testament text. It's approaching it through the ancient Near East. So there are many resources that people can use that can help them both set aside their own cultural predispositions and to tune in to the ancient world. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. John Walton, for for talking about this idea, helping us to see some of the foundational ideas and 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 ways of living that are part of Genesis 1 that kind of, you know, point us in the direction of Christ and 
a direction of of what our purpose is here on the earth and what the purpose is of the earth in general so it's been really valuable and can't wait to um read what you have coming out next great i'm just finishing a book called best practices for faithful interpretation and going to talk about lots of these ways to try to come at the bible and to, to to avoid some of the pitfalls that we sometimes fall into sounds incredible sounds like right up this alley so yeah well, thank you so much okay seth good talking to you <laughs>